Did you come from? Did you just hide? Are you? Are you not the babysitter? No, I'm not the babysitter. I'm my friend. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. This is our review of The House of the Devil, starring Jocelyn Donahue, Tom Noonan, Dee Wallace, and Mary Warnov. Directed, written, edited, probably paid for mostly by Ty West. Released in 2009 on a very small budget. Did you ever find a number? I never found one either. No, I got nothing. Yeah, I got nothing on that either. I think the, the best estimates I've seen are anywhere from around 30 to 50. But that's stretching it. it made over $100,000 at the box office, but this movie found its fame with the home audience, incredibly well-reviewed, and has led to, a, well, it's part of a what I would call a horror renaissance or a spook renaissance, the old-school haunted house stuff. Now, we actually got this requested on Twitter, and so we said, hey, you know what? We can work that one in, and you and I talked about it offline, and you've seen this before. You've actually reviewed this before in written form, correct? That is correct. Yeah, at uh, my long dormant, uh, my most recent long dormant uh, movie review website. <laughs> so, uh, well, well, we'll post a link to it, uh, maybe get you some fresh hits with this uh, release of this podcast. But I've seen this one before um, a couple of times and then watched it a couple of times for this review. And I want to ask you before we get into this, where are you on these retro modern movies, particularly in the horror genre? I'm actually a really big fan of them, assuming they do it right, if they have the patience to kind of execute movies at at a slower pace like you would have seen back in the 80s or the 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a real soft spot for them. Uh, Maybe it's because I've only been watching the good ones and I haven't ruined it by watching garbage yet, (laughs) but it's, it's been, you know, it's been a positive renaissance for me. I've been very happy with it. Yeah, uh, you hang around this podcast long enough, I promise you we'll get to a couple of those bad ones. So, but uh, not not this time, I don't think. I mean, I'm pretty sure we're both going to give this some favor just based on what I've read from you in the past and just talking about it. I know how I feel about it, but I'm with you. I'm with these if they do it with that stipulation. Do they let it build? Do they let that slow pace? And, and I'll be honest, I attribute that to something from the 70s that carried over into some of the late 80s, but really is more of a 70s thing in my opinion and you know i think about the the john carpenter halloween 1978 i mean that is a definite a slow burn of a film and uh, it you know if it had tried to go faster it would have been horrible so uh you know the fact that, that one takes forever to get anywhere and do anything is part of the build-up and i think that makes it fantastic and that's part of the intrigue of this because i i'll tell you how i saw this ron this was a late night and for whatever reason i don't watch mtv anymore but i happened to cross it as i was flipping channels and couldn't sleep one night about two o'clock in the morning and i saw this girl dancing around this house listening to an old fix song and i thought what what is this is this one of their retro videos or something you know i missed this one and I, I, you know, I ended up watching, I guess, what was the last half of it at that point. And you know, I had to look it up, you know, scrambled around on the TV guide online, found out it was something called The House of the Devil. And I thought, what in the world is that? Then turned around and sure enough, it's on, on, on the online streaming sites. And I said, well, I, I'm definitely going to invest some time into that watch it. Watched it the next day and really liked it. So I was game to go back and look at this one again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, last time I watched it, 
or the first time I watched it, I guess I should say, it was uh, my wife DVR'd it for me um, off of, uh, I think it's Chiller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. Or maybe the other one. There's another one that also is basically Chiller. <laughs> but yeah, uh, it just she found it randomly on one of those channels and recorded it for me, and it turned out to be really good. And I'm not, I'm not even sure why she did it at the time. I, I'll tell you, it is one of those things that if you're not, if you don't know, you're not looking for it. You don't know anything about it. I, and my wife had not seen it, so on my second watching of it before this review, I I had her watch it with me. She tends to go for most of the horror stuff I go for, and I, well, I'll tell you about her reaction as we get into it. She definitely had one to it um, as we we do this. But we we wanted to do this more over though, folks. When you were doing Halloween right now, you know we've got another Leprechaun coming somewhere down the pipe. But because it was requested, one we we don't always you know fulfill the request. But but we try to when there are things that we know we can get people on board for. And this one just seemed to fit right into the area uh, of what we're doing in what we generally call Shocktober, where we do our our scary movies and thrillers and stuff. And this one is, is a good departure from the majority of the Halloween series, and it's certainly a departure from Leprechaun. So I'm, I'm down to, uh, to give it a run and, and to see what we can find in it. So, Ron, why don't you go ahead and give us the plot summary for this one, then you and I will talk about the movie. After moving into a new apartment, college student Samantha, as played by Jocelyn Donahue, is desperate for a way to make a few more bucks. When a man named Mr. Ullman, played by the legendary Tom Noonan, comes on campus looking for a babysitter, Samantha jumps at the opportunity. Samantha quickly learns that the job is not quite what was advertised. He tells Samantha that she just has to stay in the house with his elderly mother-in-law, the devil as himself, (laughs) while he and the missus go out to celebrate the lunar eclipse. As if that wasn't weird enough, as the night goes on, we learn that Samantha is to be used in a ritual to birth a child of Satan. Samantha escapes, and after a chase to a cemetery, she shoots herself. But in the final scene, we see a nurse reassuring Samantha that she lived and will be fine. In fact, both she and her unborn child will be just fine. Oh, that ending. We're going to talk about that. But um, we talked about the old school horror vibe, you know, popularity back with things like The Conjuring and Annabelle, which is out in October of 2014. You know, we've talked a bit about the style and uh, you put a note in here, too. And I forgot Jocelyn Donahue is in Insidious, too, uh, which is another you know, pair of those films. Yeah, she's a uh, she plays the young version of uh, Lorraine. Which I think it, the old version is played by um, Barbara Hershey, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, that is yeah, correct. I, I thought I was right about that. Yeah, I forgot. I had forgotten about that because I, I've only seen Insidious two once, and I, I was okay with it. It wasn't grand. I liked the first one quite a bit, uh, mainly on the recommendation of your wife, as I was going off about a movie called Sinister on Twitter that I just absolutely love from a couple of years ago. She's like, "You must see Insidious." So, um, and I wound up watching that one too and like it. But yeah, that's part of this same renaissance. So, um, you know, I associate a lot of this stuff with Jason Blum and Blumhouse. Though this is not a Blumhouse. Production by any means, but I think he's responsible for a lot of these things stemming off the Paranormal Activity movies and stuff like that. Yeah, he's kind of the guy who uh, has made it his business to bring, you know, thoughtful, relatively well-crafted horror into movie theaters. And I give the Bloomhouse, uh, I give the Bloomhouse logo a lot of respect. 
<laughs> uh, I, I generally know if I see his name attached to something or if I see the little Bloomhouse bumper, I know it's going to end up being pretty good. It's going to be something I generally go for. And again, this one is not one of those, but it's in the same vein, I think. Ty West is his, definitely his own guy. And there's one thing that needs to be said from the beginning. I mean, this is most assuredly his thing. This is his baby all the way. Not only did he write it, did he help get the production together on it, did he direct it, but he edited it. So, I mean, he had his hand in every step of the way for this one. uh, Kind of like Carpenter did with the original Halloween. I thought about that as I was watching this and preparing notes for it. I said, this is definitely his creation. Like, it could be you know, in another era, it would have been Ty West's The House of the Devil, but we don't really do that anymore. I think it should be Ty West's House of the Devil anyway. Yeah. And I really and I really think he's going to get there um, at some point, barring any major missteps, because the only thing he missed from get, going full Carpenter was doing the music. Yeah, this is true. That's the only, and he he used iconic music of the day. I mean, the soundtrack to this is definitely right out of nineteen eighty three, eighty four. And I I wanted to say that from the start here, you know, we we do this movie and it's the old school uh, stop caption or stop motion. Uh, with the uh, credits on the screen and with the, with the song playing. And I wanted to ask you, when is this movie? I mean, I would guess, you know, before 1985 is what I felt like. Yeah. It feels definitely feels 1983 or maybe 1984. Right. Uh, it, it actually even looks like that time period. Cause he, he went back and he used uh, a lot of the eighties shooting techniques, late seventies, early eighties. He used 16 millimeter film. Yep. Uh, he used uh, in-camera zooms instead of, uh, you know, dolly zooms. So rather than moving the camera forward, you just hit the zoom button and really close in on faces. Uh, I I, th- I think what really makes this one work, I mean, especially uh, considering the raft of others in the same genre that ca- kind of came in this movie's wake uh, – is the attention to like eighties details. Yeah. It's, it definitely feels the eighties details. And I, my wife is one that will pick out stuff that doesn't fit when it's trying to be period and stuff. And I, I asked her specifically, I was like, when, when is this? And she, she said, oh, it looks like the eighties. And then she even asked me, so when was this made? And I said, this was 2009, you know? So I, I give total credit to him and his team for getting the aesthetic. Right. And I think that's a smart thing to do. You know, the, the thing about horror films today is technology has kind of ruined anything to be scared of. Right. <laughs> you know, having a cell phone and constant connectivity to the Internet. I mean, it, you know, if, if Samantha had had any of those things, you know, a GPS, you know, any of that stuff, that none of this would have worked. Right. Even one of those like 80s car phones. That, yeah. Like the hooked, on a brief, hooked on a brief. Yeah. Yeah. The bag phone. <laughs> yeah. So I agree. Anything like that would have would have set a lot of this off. But as it turns out, you know, she is trapped by her tech, but she is technology. I mean, she's walking around with that Sony Walkman. My brother had one of those. I remember that distinctly, man. I mean, what's funny to me is there's a generation of people that don't understand the relationship between a number two pencil and a an analog cassette tape. But I mean, <laughs> that that saved a lot of music <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. for a lot of people. So. Um, yeah, but no, I like the whole bit that it opens up with her in the apartment and, you know, the cameo from D. Wallace, who sometimes credited as D. Wallace Stone, D. Wallace. I mean, she's from everything. Critters, Cujo. Uh, I think she was in one of the Howlings, right? I mean, she's a yep. she's an 80s and 70s and 80s scream queen for sure. She was uh, 
Wasn't she? No, she, she was. Was she ET's mom? She was ET's mom. Correct. I've been forgetting well, one of her most famous roles. <laughs> not ET's mom. Yeah, yeah, Elliot's mom. I get what you mean. So maybe, so, a, maybe, maybe in a deleted scene. The the adoptive mom. Well, if if Spielberg had had his way with that sequel, so that, ah. that we'll never get to see. But uh, but yeah, you know, I um I've always you know, rec- again a recognizable face, and if you're going to do these kind of movies, I think part of the thing that Make some work is the stunt casting. I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino does this a lot, right? And yeah. in the horror genre, Rob Zombie really does it a lot. It's all about putting people in there that it's almost ironic or it's, again, it's stunt casting. And I think the entire cast here is even, uh, specifically not our lead, but everybody else is cast because of the look they have and the the thing that you know about them when they walk on the screen. And Dee Wallace is, I expected her to actually have more of a role in this. And I was going to ask you, do you think, you know, how would you have been with it if she had shown up at the end as maybe the witch lady or something like that? Uh, I like that she didn't come back mm-hmm. in, in some sort of evil role. I, I like you. I expected to see her at least more often, mm-hmm. but, uh, I don't think you cast a D Wallace to play evil. Yeah. She just, I, I, maybe it's, I, I went to a, uh, tattoo and horror convention in Nashville, uh, probably getting close to 10 years ago now to show you how old I am. <laughs> uh, and one of the, the guests there was D Wallace oh. before she, before she dropped the stone. Yeah. And she was like the nicest, sweetest little, tiny lady <laughs> imaginable. And well, that's really what she plays here. I mean, she's very fair with Samantha. She's like, look, $300, you know, just get it to me by Monday, honey. It's okay. I get a good, good feeling about people. You seem like you're okay. You know, and what we'll learn about Samantha is the reason she wants to move off campus is she has what well, may be the worst roommate of all time. Right. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the old the old college trope of if there's the sock on the door, then, you know, don't don't bother knocking or whatever. Well, apparently the roommates into that like all hours of the day and night sleeps all day. The place is trash. She doesn't take good messages. It's it's a mess. Right. Like I would see why she'd want to move off campus. Yeah. Her roommate uh, may have been one of the first people to discover cocaine in that particular (laughs) college because she certainly acts like it. Well, she does. She has that look like, you know, and, and definitely the, I don't know, 80s tramp thing. But we know, and that's the other thing too, is two of the first people we're introduced to besides Samantha, we, we don't really know anything else about, we never see again. They're never in another scene, but they're important characters to set the scene for who she is and her whole uh, opportunity. Right. Because she's, you know, dorm life not so good so she's gonna do it she needs money so she goes by the old job board and I, i'm old enough to remember even in the 90s we had these at my little college and i thought man you know and i work at a, a college now and i'm like well you can't hang paper anywhere i mean it's not the thing to do but back in the day you know people hung the the posters with the little tear tags and every now and then i'll see somebody do one for like you know selling football tickets or something but not for jobs anymore which is uh, seems like something of the the years gone by even even like when I was in graduate school, uh, again in the early 2000s, I would still see that sort of thing. Like 2004, mm-hmm. uh, I went to U of L and they had a big they had they had one of those big boards and like the the common or whatever the big four sided thing, you know, yeah. eight feet tall, just absolutely riddled with staples from generations past. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of a throwback. Plus, also seeing a um, payphone. 
That yes. was fun. Yeah, yeah, an actual working payphone. So it's been a while since I laid my eyes on one of those. But, again, it sets the whole scene. And she makes the call. And this is the thing that, like, immediately sets me off nerve is that the phone, you know, goes to a message and she, you know, leaves it. And then it rings back to her. And I had forgotten the days when you could call back to a payphone, you know. And I thought, oh, wow. Yeah, that that in and of itself was – immediately had me primed for weirdness. Yeah. Because one of the many strange phobias I had when I was a child of that era was that I would walk by every payphone I would walk by, I would check the, the uh, change thing Yep. In the, in the hopes of finding change or in the fear of finding like a dirty AIDS needle. Yeah. Razor blade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I was also petrified that the phone would start ringing and I would be expected to answer it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's the scary thing. I remember the one, that one of the Die Hard movies was totally based on that still. Like, they were still <laughs> pulling that off even that late. But, yeah, I mean, it it, I, it was unnerving. And then you get the unnerving voice of Tom Noonan, who speaks in this sort of laid-back kind of that. But you realize, like, he's, he would drink your blood, slit your throat while looking at you. Like, he's just a – he just has this – unassuming calm that is really scary yeah even like that's i think that's his like main defining characteristic as an actor Mm -hmm. uh, at least as a villain yeah and he's pretty clearly unsettlingly villainous early on his whole story is is weird and it doesn't really hang together Uh, and i think that uh samantha should be a little more weirded out than she is yeah when megan is the one who has enough good sense to to be prepared for weirdness and be prepared to flee. That's, that's not a, a good sign for your heroine. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about her friend, Megan golden globe nominee, Greta Gerwig, you know, she of the live action music video, uh, arcade fire. Yes. Uh, at the, at the online music awards or whatever. And, uh, Francis ha. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Okay. So, oh, very cool. So, well, I knew I had seen her in other things. I did look it up on IMDb after it was over, but the face just rung a bell. But the fair hair was another one of those things. I was like, oh, that's very 80s, you know, very 70s and 80s. And my my wife said, oh, yes, very much. You know, she remembered people doing that when she was growing up and then even on into later on, you know, so I, it's. I don't know. It's kind of neat, but they she go they go to eat together and they we get a clue here. And this one of the things I'll say about this movie is there's nothing in it that's incidental. Like everything is there for a reason. And two things I have noticed is one how sparsely populated this college is and this college town is. And did we ever get like a date specific of when this is taking place? Uh, just when there was the lunar eclipse. Yeah. yeah, but but it fe- it definitely feels like a college on a break. Yeah, it's like fall break or something. Like we, you know, I've I've worked at colleges for years, and when they go on fall break or spring break or whatever, it's I mean, it's a ghost town in the small college towns I've lived and worked in, and that one definitely feels that way. And so I thought, uh, you know, the roommate would be hanging around because she's into her cocaine party scene or whatever, but um, Samantha of course be hanging around because she doesn't have transportation and nowhere else to go, and she's trying to live off campus and get her life together and stuff. And we meet her friend Megan, who. I guess, you know, we're to infer from her that she's kind of well off and a little bit of a spoiled brat, but she's also a good person. At least she seems to really care for Samantha. Yeah, there's they, they seem like um, actual friends in spite of 
uh, everything. Yeah, all the differences that they have with one another. Yes, they're very much the 80s mismatched comedy pair. Yeah, yeah. So, But the kind of things that you saw, part of those tropes was, you know, the really popular pretty girls that were friends with sort of the mousy quiet girls. I mean, I think of, they, she reminds me of kind of the way Annie and Linda were juxtaposed to Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie and, and Halloween. I keep going back to Halloween, but even though it's a, a totally different kind of movie, but the vibe is the same. That's That's what I'm feeling. It, it's well. It's it's really hard not to go back to Halloween because it lo- it looks awfully similar. Like I, I have no doubt that Ty West watched Halloween dozens of times before he even sat down to write this movie because it kind of feels it, it's got that kind of sparse feel of Halloween. Like I think he watched that, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the Amityville Horror for whatever reason. To, to, and and actually a little bit of the original Black Christmas. I got that. Yeah, I was just thinking of Black. Yeah, I was just thinking of Black Christmas regarding that big empty house and the yeah. way there there there's all these surprises that we see that she doesn't see. And by surprises, I mean corpses. All those things are definitely playing in here. Peeping Tom, you know, all all of that stuff. And I think again, it's part of the, the. This guy is not an idiot. He knows how to do the references right. I mean, that's the thing that made Scream such a unique horror film was it was a horror film totally aware that it was a horror film and then played off of it ironically right these films are going back to a different time before we you know knew everything and but still playing it smart like samantha doesn't make the greatest choices here by any means but she doesn't do anything that seems so out of the ordinary that you or i wouldn't have done in the same situation right like that's what makes us endeared to her because i mean her friend basically gives her an out like look i'll call my dad it's no big deal you know and and she's like, no, nah, you know, I kind of want to do it on my own. So that's that's endearing to for us to her. I mean, it makes her makes us really want to root for her. Yeah, she could have taken the easy way out and didn't. Uh, and you the, know, and the lesson is she probably should have. So. <laughs> and the lesson is, kids, if someone <laughs> offers you money, take it. <laughs> Unless they want you to sit with their weird, you know, mother-in-law. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love the whole thing is that, you know, she finally gets, we meet the roommate and that, that scene, and then she gets the message. She calls back. And I love this thing that Noonan never answers the phone. He always, you know, it's always left the message. It gets to the, the answering machine or whatever, and then he'll either pick up or he'll call her back. And I, I wanted to get your thought on maybe why that was. Cause I, I don't know. I was wondering why he just never answered the phone. Uh, well, I think it's because it's more unsettling when someone picks up while you're recording a message. Yeah. Uh, back when that was the thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, and it also feels more like he's screening the the other calls that may or may not be coming in for this position, and just looking for Sam. It makes her. It makes me at least feel like she's the well chosen like victim. Like they've been waiting for her to respond. It seems that way for sure, even in spite of what he'll say later. And we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. But they go to the house, they you know, Megan gives her the ride out there and they're in the Volvo. And I love the way this thing is shot and stuff. You know, it's from the back seat, it's not the standard two shot up front. It's like you're laying down in the back seat watching them have this conversation. And I again that was a a touch from a film era gone by that you know you just don't see anymore. And so I, I enjoyed that. I kind of wish that somebody would bring it back. I mean, yeah. besides, besides Ty West, obviously. It, 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 yeah, I like the uh, – it just caters to the whole voyeuristic feel the film has. Like mm-hmm. it feels like you're watching someone s- secretly you know, dance around inside a house 
Yeah, uh, it it is a very voyeuristic film. I think you're right. It was the camera for the audience is the fly on the wall. You know that you wish you could be in a in a scary situation like that, or that you're going to play as the avatar for that situation. And so, I don't know. It, it does make it different. But they get to the house, and I love how Megan is automatically suspicious but we get other clues too that if you you know on first viewing i don't know if you catch i definitely didn't until the second or third time i saw it but megan calls out the kind of car that's parked in the driveway and then when the the couple leaves in a little bit they leave in a different vehicle and so that's you know something to to note but i love how she is the skeptical one along the way but she's also going to sit there and eat all the dude's candy you know, and I, I don't know. I, I thought that was neat. The weirdest thing is how they introduce Tom Noonan proper here, right? Is he, oh, yeah. he opens the door and it's, I imagine in real life, he probably does tower over these two young women, you know, because he's about six, five or so. And he's just a beanpole. He, he's six, three. He is. Okay. Yeah. Which is tall, which is tall enough. Yeah. Cause, cause, cause they're both like five, two probably. Yeah. So, and he's standing up in the doorway too. And so that, you know, all you see is his hand, you hear that voice and then he brings him in and we finally get one good shot of him. And I don't know, I, I again, found all of that very unsettling and just setting the mood of weird. And then his reaction to the fact that there's two of them there and he calls Samantha into the kitchen and he's like, he's having this whole freak out about, I I can only pay one of you. And it's like, dang it, you brought somebody else. Like that's going to totally screw up his plan because he knows I'm going to have to have somebody by themselves in this house to be able to pull off what we want to pull off. But it's done in such a style that it both feels unsettling, but it's not an immediate you should flee this house sort of red flag. You know what I'm saying? Right. Exactly. At least not to me. It's just un- it's just unnerving enough that you can still ignore it. Right. And, and you look at it from Samantha's point of view. You know, Megan is supposed to be the uh, the logical conscience. This is weird. This dude is weird. It's not a babysitting job. It's sitting for his mother-in-law. That's strange. You just need to get out of here. That's the logic. But Samantha, who's the realist at the moment, is like, yeah, that's for sure, but I need 300 bucks by Monday. This is $400. So I'm already like started on next month's rent. It's just a few hours. How bad can it really be? You know, and you know, we've all worked for you know, in that kind of moment and stuff, right? I mean, yeah, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I remember, you know, proctoring standardized tests on, on the weekend sometimes and going, well, it won't be this only four hours of my life. And it's the four longest hours of my life it would ever be. But it was worth the 50 bucks or whatever they were going to pay me to do it. So because, you know, at that time, yeah, that made a difference. So, um, I mean, yeah. It, it's amazing, you know, I think that's one of the fun things to think about, and especially people, you know, our age is to look back and to think about what we, um, what you put up with when, when you have to make money, <laughs> so, you know? Yeah, in, in my case, it was uh, leaf, it was uh, pulling dried leaves off of tobacco stalks in a, <laughs> in a, in an isolated middle of nowhere cold barn. Wow, that is a probably a Children of the Corn sequel waiting to happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was it was it was fun. Yeah, by fun I mean unnerving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're just ready to pull those things and be done. So, but that's Samantha's whole thing. Is no, I'm she's sticking it out. So Megan's like, okay, fine. So she leaves, and the offer at that point has gone up to four hundred bucks, which I was like, man, four hundred bucks. It that that's a lot of money to me now. That would have been like a whole lot of money way back then. I was impressed with that. It, it, I think that it's such a big offer kind of helps play up the, oh, he's just a, 
it, clearly he's got some kind of real job. He's just a little, you know, eccentric. Rich, yeah, rich, weird dude, basically. Yeah, living in some isolated house out in the middle of nowhere with the 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 only place you can call for pizza delivery. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the whole reason, though, he's looking for a sitter. It's because this lunar eclipse is really important to he and his wife, is what he says. And, you know, even Megan asks him, are you some kind of an astronomer? And he goes on and on about the view and all this stuff. And he's like, no, not so much. And it's, I mean, it sets up the idea that so, something's not right about that, right? Like, it's it's weird. Well, as long as she orders pizza, everything's going to be okay. Right, yeah, he keeps on about the pizza. Like he's, he's upset. It's almost like uh, Halloween four, where they keep talking about getting the scoop of ice cream. <laughs> you know, it's like hey, yeah. let's get some ice cream. <laughs> so, but yeah, it just goes on and on. But I always, I, I, I'm sure that if uh, Megan had heard overheard that, she would have assumed it was some sort of lunar eclipse key party they were rushing off to. <laughs> yeah, something weird going on. So, But again, she's left in the the uh, den all by herself. And then while Megan is sort of waiting in the the other area for the uh, Mr. Ullman to finish up what he's doing, here comes the wife, his wife, Mary Warnoff, right? Another scream queen of years gone by. Yes, you you re- for a big period there in the eighties, you could not have a movie that didn't have Mary Warrenov in it. Uh, and it's it seems like because I mean she was in everything from uh, Rock and Roll High School, Buck Rogers, uh, all, she was on all, Char- Eating Raul, uh, all manner of Corman stuff too, right? Night of, Night of the Comet, yeah. Oh, Night of the Comet, I forgot about that one, but yeah, so. Um, Chopping Mall and Terror Vision back to back in 1986. You know what? I forgot she was in Terror. Who was she in Terror Vision? She was the creepy wife swapping. She that was wife. her. Oh my goodness! I've you know we reviewed that way back when. I had totally forgotten that. So wow, I forgot she was. I knew I knew her. I didn't look up her oeuvre, but I have seen her in a hundred things. You know, again, she's, she's really distinctively tall and and odd looking. Yeah, almost reminded me a little bit of Colleen Dewhurst in the original When a Stranger Calls. Just has this look that I don't know. It, it unnerves you, but at the same time, it's like hard life you know is a sort of the look on her face is what you get so like but, a like a like a, like a rumpled rumpled dignity kind of yeah exactly like not not bad but just you can tell there's weather and mileage there that's intriguing so yeah, but she, she's seen some stuff she was also in devil's rejects oh i forgot i forgot well again you know we're, we're coming full circle with our stunt casting but yeah that's right so you know the thing about that that gets me is as goofy or not as goofy as unnerving as Tom Noonan is in this movie. She is like double that. Like the minute she walks in the room, it's like ice has just gone up the back of my scalp. It it is really, really spooky. Just the way she looks and the way she talks, it's all in those subtle little things, but I love that. I thought it was fantastic. She's, she's great. She's really great in this role. And she's shot in a way that really kind of accentuates that she's this really tall, odd woman like she just looks slightly everything looks slightly wrong about the way she's dressed yeah what is she's wearing like a a black almost like a cape looking thing it's a strange outfit she's got going on and she's got a fur and she talks about having been down in the basement to get the furs which is another clue because we'll see samantha find them later in a closet but you know I, i don't know i just thought that was that's also not the not a place you keep fur 
Yeah, in a basement. Yeah, in a damp basement. Because I mean, if that if that place is anything like my house, that basement is damp all the time. Well, you know, that's interesting to think of. Having never grown up with a basement or lived in a place with a basement, I wouldn't know that. But my wife said the same thing. So she's like, that's a weird place to keep a fur. And I was like, well, maybe it's insulated. Because I I knew people that had one that was like totally finished or whatever. But Yeah, but I don't think that house would have a finished basement, though. It didn't look like, even though it was a nice looking place, it did look like, you know, there would be an attic in a basement. There were just the, you know, sort of the wreck place, you know, to just stick stuff. But I don't know. Uh, It's, again, it's all in the way she delivers lines. And I love, though, and this lends credence to your theory that they've been waiting on Samantha or somebody like Samantha, even in spite of what he said about the other girl didn't work out. Um, I don't think there ever was another girl. I think he was just behind on doing stuff. I think they've been waiting on her for a long time because she talks about, Oh, you'll be fine. We know you'll be fine. It's like they've all done this sort of mystical background check on her. Or something. Yeah. It, it feels like they've definitely been following her around. They've done their homework on her. They put the flyer in a place where she would find it. Mm hmm. It, you know, it, it does lend credence to your idea that this could have been set up from the very beginning, but um, like even involving like D. Wallace. Exactly. Because she was in a hurry to get out of there, you know, which is sort of strange when somebody's you know, about to make money off of you. They tend to not want to leave so so fast. So that's why I've always thought that. But again, I think we're supposed to read D. Wallace as just the sweet lady that's giving her a deal and being nice and circumstances, you know, lead Samantha down this road to hell, basically. Yeah, un- unlike Mary Morinov and Tom Noonan, uh, D. Wallace just doesn't naturally read evil to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. I don't think she does. Like, Tom Noonan could offer me like some hard candy, and I would just be tasting for the poison, you know what I'm saying? Tom, Tom Noonan could host the Muppets, and I would say you need to rate it R for, for Thriller. I, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, this guy is just creepy. So, and I think that's his charm, too. And I think that's part of why he's good at what he does. But, you know, they... Megan finally just you know leaves, and then the Ullmans leave, and that's the other clue too. And it's a flashback later, and I almost wonder if somebody from the studio made him put that in there, or if he did it knowing people wouldn't have caught it the first time. But you know, it's not the same car that you know they drove up behind that they leave in, and she's you know kind of looking around the house, figuring out what to do, and she comes on that pool table. And did you notice how the pool balls were arranged? No, they're, I, in a, I they're, in, they're in a pentagram. And I, I had a friend of mine told me that. And I said, no way. And so when I watched it again, these two times, I was like, aha, they are. That's another one of those subtle clues. He said, you got to remember, there's nothing in this film that is incidental. Everything is there for a reason. And yeah. So, and I don't I don't believe there uh, I don't think there was a studio uh, to, yeah. to request that inset shot. I think that was just him helping further connect the dots for everybody. Excellent point. And, and good to give him credit for it. Cause he then that's, that's something that a good director can and will do though. I, well, I guess I'm just jaded movie goer that knows a lot of times studios go, and eh, nobody knows what's going on there, man, but put another shot back in. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, a, a guy who went to the effort to track down 16 millimeter film yeah. who made, who actually got the movie released on VHS yeah, in a, in the big movie in the big video rental clamshell box, uh, <laughs> I don't think that he's missing a trick. No, just this is, this just is true. 
on his own. Yeah. And and that would be the reason studios would hire him to do other work is that, well, if he can figure that out on his own, then, hey, you know, let's give him some real money to work with and see what he does. And we haven't there haven't really been any effects yet. But when they get to the special effects, I guess the first big one is coming up now. I got to say, I'm really impressed with the limited budget that this movie supposedly has with what they pull off in terms of visual effects. And it comes when Megan pulls over she does her car stall what what is it that makes her pull over and start smoking a cigarette off the side of the road there i think her car stalls out yeah i think she <laughs> is having some kind of car problem okay so see i thought that was um like a setup because she encounters this young man that will later learn is the son of the almonds that's out there and he like seems to have just come out of nowhere to help light her cigarette for her, and she's freaking out about it as you naturally would and I took that as he did something to the car thinking, oh, she's the babysitter. If she tries to drive away, well, we'll just kidnap her. Yeah, that was that was kind of how I ended up reading it, too, once you get the the pretty shocking reveal of his true nature. Uh, oh, it's, it's a great – well, it is a moment where my wife let out an audible gasp and her jaw held open for 40 seconds, I, I promise, at the end of it because you know, I knew what was coming. She had no idea. And we're sitting there, and he, you know, he just asked Megan, you're not the babysitter? She's like, no, my friend, and doesn't even finish the sentence, and he blows her face off with that 44 Magnum. And, I mean, I was like, what a shocking turn for this film. 37 minutes into it, it's been very slow, nothing going on, and then all of a sudden, boom. And, I mean, it splatters her face across that windshield. That was an impressive visual effect. It was it was like Tom Savini good. Yes. Uh, he's the guy who did the, uh, the infamous shotgun through the windscreen in um, Maniac. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely up there with that. It it makes me think it's almost inspired by that. And it's also kind of shocking, especially watching the movie now, uh, that this is like killing off. A, she's like a legitimate star now at this point. Yeah. Oh, no. It, it's, it, and she's somebody we've she's one of the only other people we've had any establishing conversations with. Yeah. It's like uh, kind of like in Psycho where they kill off uh, Janet Lee. Janet Lee uh, yeah. halfway through the movie. Yeah, exactly. That's the big turn of the film. And I think that's another one that we haven't referenced, but that is certainly an influence here for Ty West, because that's this kind of move is that you really want to turn everybody on their head. But this is the way to do it. Cause I didn't see that coming the first time I saw this clearly my wife did. And I don't think anybody does. I mean, it's cause it's so sudden. That's the thing is in any other movie, he'd have waited for her to turn around. Then he'd have grabbed her and drug her out by the tree and beat her. And you know, I mean, it would have gone on forever. This one, nope. Boom. Done. You know, and it, and then he just kind of stops her car. And the creepiest bit is that he leans down and gets her lit cigarette out of her dead fingers and proceeds to just go ahead and smoke it on down. Yeah, that was my that was one of my favorite character touches, uh, just establishing that this is a dude who who has seen some uh, murders before. This is not a guy who is new to violence. This is somebody who is an experienced killer of blondes <laughs> yeah or of people whatever it might be you know that that's the thing that gets me in this is that the gore in this is very much out of the later 80s i would say more of the friday the 13th kind of style versus the halloween if you will you know it's it's much more gory but it's still played with the the suspense like the early friday the 13th films where there well, still it's, was yeah suspense. yeah it's definitely gorier than your uh like halloween but there were plenty of gory movies back then too true uh 
it, it's almost in in a sense it's almost kind of it makes me think of like one of the uh, Black Sunday has some pretty gory parts in it. Yes, it does. Uh, Maniac, of course. Yeah, uh, Maniac's I, a very gory film. I think. Yeah, uh, um, Henry. Um, you know, Henry Portrait of a Serial, serial Killer. killer yeah. Very gory film. Absolutely. Yeah. This, yeah. this is very. Uh, it's very much executed in the style of like Henry. Yes. It's, it's it's very slow. There's not a lot going on. You're talking and establishing weirdness, and then all of a sudden you get like just out of nowhere a straight up brutal murder. Exactly. And then he, you know, he ditches her car, so you know already Samantha is doomed. At this point, it's like, well, I, you know, we don't know what they're up to yet. Clearly, something tied to this, you know, lunar eclipse and the title of the movie is The House of the Devil. So I'm, I'm going to guess here there's a ritual coming soon. What I'm sitting here actually actively asking myself is, if this movie does an exorcism, am I going to get up and walk out? Because that is a trope that I am personally tired of seeing. I think it gets overused. Um, all the time. It just seems to be the go-to default. Now, luckily, they don't do that here, but I actually caught myself wondering if they would trope out, as I called it. Yeah, that's... Uh, I don't think I was afraid of that so much, as, as much as you are. Uh, I'm not really... I, I mean, I'm kind of sick of exorcism as a plot device, but not to the point where... Like, in, in a movie like House of the Devil, if I don't get some kind of devilness, <laughs> I'm going to be disappointed... I mean, I was. Yeah. I mean, that's more of what I was expecting for sure. But I, I felt like uh, Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park. You are going to have some Satan in your House of the Devil movie, right? You are going to have some dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour. <laughs> so it's, I, I kept waiting for it, but I thought, well, we just shot a, we just shot the pretty girl's face off. So clearly now I'm paying attention. So it, it, it's funny. I pulled up her uh, Greta Gerwig's IMDb page, mm-hmm. and it turns out she's five nine. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Tom Noonan is just creepily giant. He is just really lanky. So, Well, they kind of shoot it in such a way that it accentuates both him and Mary Warnover are tall people. Yeah. And they shoot him in a way that accentuates their angular, skinny weirdness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely over the two females uh, that are a part of this film. That's for sure. So. Because Mary Warnover's 5'9", too, but... They shoot her in such a way that she looks like she's eight feet tall. Exactly. Yeah, she looks much taller. So they, you know, that's all done with lifts and heels and stuff. I mean, I, I could see how they pull that off, but uh, it's interesting to note too. But I mean, that's the the big turn. And now, you know, I, I, like I said, the, this dude is really into this lunar eclipse and pizza, and um, Megan is shot. Samantha's messing around the house, and then we get the music video. Uh, the fix. Uh, one thing leads to another. And this is another one of my little geeky moments to notice. Boy, nothing is taken for granted here. Everything's done on purpose. You know, being a guitar guy and a guitar player, I happen to know things about that song that you know I wouldn't know otherwise. But knowing it gives a whole level of just creepiness as to why it was used there. One, the lyric to it is all about people that are deceptive and lying and you know one thing leads to another it just goes down the hill right and that's what's happening to samantha here is she's becoming braver around that house kind of dancing around upstairs and what that'll ultimately lead her to but that song the guitar riff for it all of it is based off of the three strings on the sixth fret six 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 in a row like the whole song the whole lick that breaks off of that and of course knowing that i was like wait a minute i think that's a one of those six 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 riffs you know because the i just used to you know pay attention to that kind of stuff and sure enough i looked it up and i was like i knew it and i was like ah i don't i bet you that is not arbitrary if, i don't know if you could ever get ty west to admit that anybody's ever thought of it 
maybe I'm projecting, but I just felt like it's another instance where not only the song fits, but just the way the song's even played is fitting the whole motif of what he's going for. See, now that's a phenomenal bit of information. And uh, I, I wouldn't put it past him to know that, but I had no idea where you were going with that. And that's f- that's phenomenal. Yeah, it's one of those just odd little things, again, to note. But I thought, I don't know, it's cool. But I love the way Samantha dances around the house here. It's very Breakfast Club. You know, if the dance scene from that, I sort of felt like I was in a John Hughes movie for a minute. So I'm, I'm in that 80s. And they have to do something to get us, get our minds off of what we just saw, right? Which was... Megan's face being splattered. So if they're going to re-nerve us, as it were, this is going to be the way to do it. Yeah, and it, and it really works. And it also sets up her exploring the house in a way that doesn't feel like her looking around the house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because she's not really paying attention. She's just kind of bebopping along, you know, yeah. shoots a pool, go into the kitchen, well, yeah, go she- upstairs. Yeah. Go break a vase. You yeah, know, that yeah. Kind of thing. yeah, she rearranges the pool table. She plays a game of pool. She runs around. She's, and I'm going, this song's only about four minutes long. So she gets a lot done. Or maybe she just did like a lot of us did. She she knew the uh, art of the rewind. She, she, you could hit it just right on your tape, you know? And she keep going back and back to the same song. But she was dancing around for a while and then, of course, bumps into the vase. And, ah, you know, now we've got to clean it up. And... In the process of cleaning it up, she makes a discovery, and then the audience is let in on the discovery, right? We see the furs in the closet, and we see pictures of a bunch of other people. Yeah, suggesting that that this is not the house of uh, the folks who are arranging for elder care. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and it's the... Um, is the dead family the family that's in the pictures? I, I think so, because that's what it's, we get, is that we pan to the room where she doesn't go in, but there's a family laid out on the floor. There's a man, a wife, and then a little boy whose chest is totally cracked open in the middle of a bloody pentagram. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if they were – I assume they're supposed to be the same people. I didn't see – I was too busy staring at the pentagram and the cracked open chest to look at faces. Yeah, again, more good makeup effect. And like his eyes seem to be carved out. You, you know, the stuff went down in there that is clearly not on the up and up. And and now you know for sure what you've suspected all along is that, well, the Omens are not who they say they were. And they have basically just taken over this house because of the view that you get for the lunar eclipse, which apparently is all a part of this big ritual. I can only assume that's that's the reason this house was chosen. Plus... It's out in the middle of nowhere. They yeah. do a really good job of establishing that this is like uncomfortably far away from everything. Yeah, was it Megan says we had to look at a map. You yeah, know? they had to look at a map. <laughs> yeah, back before there was was uh, map quest or you know Garmin kids. That's what we had to do. So she might have even called AAA and had them do a route tri- uh, a trip plan for her. <laughs> you never know. This is true. Set up the trip tick. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. So I mean, she she knows exactly what uh, she's doing. So, but she's out in the middle of nowhere. So she's kind of unnerved herself a little bit. But she cleans this whole thing up, and she's like, ah, "It'll be cool." So she calls for the pizza, right? And she's or she's already called for the pizza. And it's taking a long time to get there and a longer time to get there and a longer time to get there. And at that point, she's starting to get weirded out, right? Yes, that's where we get the good uh, that's that's where we get the good mo- moment of the shot, uh, the exterior shot of the house, the lights just clicking on one by one mm-hmm. and then the one light being on upstairs the whole time. Yeah. Where 
where grandma is supposedly hanging out. Yeah, or, or the devil or whatever. We'll, we'll get to whatever she is in a minute. But you got that, and there's also the van that's parked out on the road that, you know, you don't know what that's all about until we'll learn later. And when the pizza finally shows up, it's uh, brought to her by the same guy that shot Megan in the face, right? So now we know she's in serious trouble. Yeah, and he skulks around uh, watching to make sure she actually eats the pizza. Yeah, so which is another clue that something's up with the pizza, which we, you, know, you don't know at first. You figure it out uh, later, and then that you know, then you know, and you're like, ah, oh, I should have seen it coming, right? But that's what they do. Yeah. Uh, at what point does she call nine one one? I think it's right after she gets the pizza. It's somewhere along in there, and she she dials nine one one on the old rotary phone. And I didn't know this is this a this is a famous voice though, right? Yes, this uh, the operator is uh, the voice of the current millennial generation, Miss Lena Dunham. Oh, okay. So I thought that was that sounded very familiar. So Do, doing a doing a doing a voice. Yeah, must be a friend of Ty West, I would imagine. Probably just yeah, one of those I think favors. They, yeah. I think they all ran in the same kind of circle. Of, that, that would make sense. So I could see yeah. that. So, yeah. So I don't know. I thought, uh, you know, the the whole setup there is, though, that she, she has her moment. And this, this is the best part of these kind of movies is when someone – when your protagonist has a moment that they can get out of this and then they don't take it. They talk themselves out of it. That you know makes everything that happens to them much more tragic as it goes along, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie also always makes me want to get pizza. <laughs> it does. It does. It is heavy on the pizza. In fact, I was eating pizza last night as I watched this. So oddly enough, and if you're ever in Auburn, Alabama, I recommend the uh, Little Italy. So um, can't go wrong with the Sicilian. So anyway, um, <laughs> so that's getting cut because they got to pay for that. So anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> So anyway, but yeah, she, she starts eating the pizza. She starts messing around the house again. And then now this is where everything goes into overdrive, right? Like she's, she's skulking around the house. She's trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, she turns on a light and boom, the lights go out. Yeah. That's the, um, it, when she takes her first bite of that pizza, which clearly tastes funny because she throws a whole slice away. Yeah. There, that's that right there is when that's kind of the, uh, flipping the switch as it were where her fate is sealed. Yeah, exactly. Because she's starts to see the door from upstairs slowly creak open. It's got light in there, but there's no light in the rest of the house. And before the door opens, she passes out. And when she wakes up, we wake up to our good strobe light inducing moment here. And she's basically tied to the concrete floor in a pentagram in her underwear, gagged and bound and random stuff is going down. Like the, the son walks in in his black robe. Mr. Allman walks in with his cane in the black robe. Mrs. Allman walks in. And then what we're to presume is grandma, the devil incarnate, I guess walks in the old witch. I, I called her the Blair witch. Uh, uh, yeah. The crone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, what the is, gypsy, the gypsy from Drag Me to Hell. There you go. In. Yes, very much that way. Like she would have been her older sister or something, you know. But now, walk me through what happens here. What does she do to Samantha exactly? Well, they uh, like 
they've, they've got her down on the ground and they're like fondling her stomach and like painting. I think they're painting another pentagram on her stomach. I can't really tell. They're painting some sort of uh, occult design on her stomach. Right. In blood. Yeah. And then they put blood in what looks like a cow's head. And they pour it into her mouth. Oh, it's not just pudding blood. It's the witch cuts her wrists open. Oh, yes, that's into right. It and then pours it down her throat, like gags her with it. It's it's got well, it's got to be fresh blood. You can't yeah summon any kind of supernatural monster without fresh blood. I mean, you're just you can't just go down to the Costco and get a a, <laughs> a value size yeah tub of human blood. You got to do this thing. Yeah, this has got to be organic. Yeah. Real grandma blood. <laughs> this is not a cat, you know. No, this is real person blood. No, I'm with you. It's, but uh, this is when this movie has now gone into what I call like Amityville level overdrive. Like it's just gone crazy here at the end. Or it's also that same ending that like when Laurie Strode finds all the dead people in the house. Just everything oh, hits yeah. at once, right? It's all that same mm-hmm. stuff, and it's almost paced the same way too. And I, I think I appreciated that and sort of caught that watching it this time, having recently revisited that film a bit for a review. I thought, you know, th- this guy knows what he's doing and this tension works. The music, well, you know, we haven't talked much about the score. We've talked about the 80s songs here, but the score here, just those whining strings and stuff. Yeah, the, the, the psycho string music. This is yeah. one of the few moments where the soundtrack uh, makes itself known. Yeah. Uh, aside from the... Uh, the pool playing dance routine. It, this is one of the few times the score pokes its nose in and it's really well done, really tense feeling music. I think the thing I like about it is that it's competing with the sound of everything that's going on in the room, her screaming, gurgling the blood, the seance that's going on. I mean, you, you almost feel like there's chanting in the background. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. And some way she breaks free from all of this and scratches grandma across the face, jumps up. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, that's the fastest untying job I've ever seen. I'm like, whoever tied her up did, didn't take uh, not tying class and Boy Scouts. That was, those were easy to get out of for her. <laughs> yeah. the uh, Well, maybe they skipped that day in Evil O's class. <laughs> could, could be. <laughs> But she gets out of there quick. She, I, I love her. You know, she stabs Allman, but she fights with the sun and another good Tom Savini esque effect. She basically busts one of his eyeballs for it. Oh yeah, it, it, that that was an awesome effect right there. Yeah. Uh, oh. Even though you see him blinking his injured eye later, it's still really terrifying to, to behold. That's another one of my weird things is the I, I, eyeballs. I, yeah. Well, I saw the uh, the zombie to Lucio Fulci eyeball <laughs> gimmicks way too early in life. Yeah. So I actually, I, I relate a lot of this to like Dario Argento kind of stuff, you know, very suspicious, and all that kind of stuff. It just feels just, just bug nuts in a lot of ways. Just crazy. And all these things going on and she's trying I mean, she's covered in blood, you know, she, her blood, grandma's blood, a whole lot of blood. That white sheet is just covered in it. She runs, upstairs and she slips and falls on the floor and there we see the body of Megan and I'm like I guess they were just going to burn the house down at the end of this that was my assumption yeah I mean that's that's what I would do 
I know. I thought, well, I guess that's the reason to leave the body just bleeding out on the floor there, which I don't know. I didn't know how, how much she would still have left dinner with that gaping hole in her head, having sat in the car for an hour or however long it's been. But I don't know. Very, very weird because then, then you it's just more of the letting your protagonist know how screwed she really is. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's but it, it's really a, it, it's it's well placed in the narrative, though. That's mm-hmm. that's a good place for that kind of reveal. Uh, just when you think she's going to get away because she's just gouged to do die ball out and mm-hmm. has fled. Then you get the 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 well time slip. I mean, it makes sense because the place is just covered in blood yeah. at this point, And even she's just like straight up covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and even the dude fought chasing her, the son, is, is chasing her. He's slipping around, and he finally beads down on her and shoots her. And with one only one good eye, of course, he doesn't kill her. He just hits her right in the arm, and she well, goes he, to the ground. He doesn't kill her for a reason. Well, you say that, but I was going to ask you about the thing he does next. His next move is he you know cocks that gun at her as he's standing over her. And I'm like, is he really going to shoot her, knowing where this movie is going, you know? I think at that point he's not – he's no longer with the program. <laughs> I guess so. I guess he's like, screw the sacrifice. We'll just do it next time. I don't – I guess when you lose an eye, it all all bets are off. I, I would say so. I mean <laughs> yeah. that, that's a pretty big loss right there. You're never going to – you're going to have to bust out the Days of Our Lives eye patch and it's just <laughs> never going to be the same. I know. You're, you're never going to be able to not explain that the rest of your life. Exactly. That so was- I, that was the soap opera with the dude with the eye patch, right? I think so. There's, there's been so many. I think all of them have sported someone with an eye patch. But I know exactly what you meant when you said that. So yeah, it's another '80s reference because <laughs> yeah. my mom was just ate that show up. Yeah. So oh yeah, I think I think all of them had one of those. But you're right. But Megan, of course, has a knife that she's used. To, she's grabbed a kitchen knife and she leans up and just all you hear is. And this is another good moment of of the, the era of film this is trying to emulate is you don't see it, you just hear the sound, the sweet. And you realize really quickly she has slit this dude's throat wide open, and he falls back against the banister and bleeds out on the uh, the steps and drops the gun. Yeah, well, when you when you when you go from ear to ear like that, it doesn't take very long. Yeah, uh, and, and it was really well crafted. I, I, you're right. I do love that. Most of the movie is pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get uh, incidental sounds. You get a lot of the fix. But when they when it's time to use noise, they use noise really well. Oh, exactly. I mean, the Foley work here is amazing, and I, again, I credit a lot of that in the editing process to what Ty West is able to sort of put together with his group of people. I mean, it's fantastic. And she runs into a room, uh, and I love this scene with Mary Warnoff when she comes in and she, you know, just cusses her out. I was like, you ungrateful little, and, you know, and leaves her on the ground and kicks her a couple times, and then she takes off the wig, right? Because at yeah. some point, Megan has found all this black hair in the the bathtub, just sort of randomly, and you, it, you realize now that this woman has cut this wig up to sort of make her look like it's her hair. But she's, you know, she's nearly bald. She's got this graying hair, so you don't even really know how old she is. And I love too that there's no sound at all when she gets stabbed in the back. It's just like, oh, and then she falls backward with that knife. Yeah, that was that was really well done. I wasn't sure about the uh, I, I wasn't getting connecting the the hair in the tub to the wig until you uh, until she pulls the the hair off. I just assumed she had a weird haircut. Yeah, because it is a terrible haircut. <laughs> Let's just say yeah, it, so. it's it's kind of a I think that it, that establishes the whole thing that these people are ha, have been doing this much longer, planning this much longer, 
than uh, than even it looks. Like this is like their once in a generation kind of plan. Uh, yeah, uh, my assumption was anyway yeah. was that once you know thousand year old grandma was uncovered that all these people were were secretly much much older uh, than they look, possibly through some sort of nefarious means, uh, black magic. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that's what we're supposed to read out of it. But Samantha has now foiled two of them, and she begins to run away. But as she's running, she has these sort of, you know, headache-inducing, seizure-slamming-against-the-wall visions of Grandma dripping blood out of her mouth and laughing at her, right? Yeah. Yeah, very weird insert stuff, but well done. Again, something I would expect from that era of film. Yeah, it definitely feels era appropriate. Um, the kind of punch ins that they're doing, um, and they do a lot of fun in camera effects to simulate her, just her queasiness from the drugs, her passing out, her waking up. That's all done in camera, right? Uh, and it looks really cool, and it's really kind of a, a thing you don't you, you you still see that some, but not as much as you did back then. No, no, not at all. And one of the best effects is when she pulls up her shirt and you see like these veiny black lines running across her stomach, you know, which is also smeared with blood, but is now also having like a, it's like a spider bite reaction underneath it, which you're like, well, what's that all about? Clearly this is not good. Yeah, that's, that's bad. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's how you know things are bad. And so it's, you know, also too, just a flashback for a minute to that ceiling or when they've got her in the attic and all that going on. I got a Rosemary's Baby kind of vibe off of that too with the, you know, when the demon is on top of her and all that stuff. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was definitely a feel for that. I think that's, I think he's definitely looking at that kind of film and evoking that Ty West wants us to remember that and feel that. Because the people that are going to watch this are people that have seen all this stuff, probably, right? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. yeah. This is... It's not... Generally not a, a movie that's aimed towards neophytes. No. He's no. he's very much a horror guy working in horror. Yeah. Uh, and even his uh, his steps outside of horror that, are, that he's going to be doing, uh, like in the Valley of... He's got a movie coming out uh, in a Valley of Violence, mm-hmm. and that's going to be a Bloomhouse movie. That's... Oh. He's finally come full circle, and he's working with uh, Jason Bloom. Exactly. So, and I think that's going to be like a, a a bit of a horror western or something like that. Yeah, so. it's going to be a horror western, which is is going to be a, a tough genre to pull off. But I, I think say. If, anybody, I, I, if anybody can make it work, I mean, and he's got a phenomenal mm-hmm. cast. Uh, this is a really diverging, but I do like the fact that he he has come full circle, and he's going to be working with Bloomhouse. Oh yeah, no. That's and he's going to be getting a, a decent budget because I mean he's got Karen Gillan, Ethan Hawke, yet again. I think Ethan, Ethan Hawke is friends with Bloom somewhere along the way. Like they they have to be buddies because he's in a ton of these movies, you know, The Purge and Sinister and all kinds of stuff. They've got to be like old buddies or coffee drinking friends or something. So. Yeah, I mean, but he he works in all those movies. Yep. And he, and with his goatee that he's got, he looks very Western, Old West looking. Oh, look, yeah, put a duster on him and he's fine. I agree. So, but but back to Samantha here. You know, she she's killed pizza guy. She stabbed the old lady. She's running downstairs and she you know reinserts the knife into Ullman, who's already hurt by the steps, right? And I love how she's just running, screaming her head off. She's got the gun now, and he's like, Samantha, wait, hold on. I'm like, no, that's yeah, that's hilarious. I actually yeah. laughed. 
his his reaction is the funniest part to me, and it's also one of the scariest things. Yeah, he's it's like, like totally calm about all of this. It, it's like, all right, now it's time to be reasonable. Let's see if we can come to an agreement here. You give birth to the Antichrist, <laughs> and and you know you can kill me anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. I I thought that was. It was weird because, of course, they chased to a cemetery, which my wife had the greatest reaction to. She was like, yes, let's go to a cemetery because this night isn't any weirder yet. So (laughs) I said, yeah, I imagine at that point, you know, if you allow logic to creep in, that certainly comes around. But another one of the probably the reasons this house was chosen, it's it's the house by the cemetery to go for old school horror movies. So it's it's uh, it's a good uh, excuse for why the house is so isolated, too. Exactly. I so, mean, nobody really wants to live next door to a cemetery. Yeah, I, people don't set out to do that. Well, I, I, I have. <laughs> when, when, we were, when we were house hunting, one of my favorite houses was by a cemetery. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> it was like it, the street dead-ended into the cemetery, and it was on the end of the street, so oh, wow. my neighbors were corpses. <laughs> that would have been quite interesting. And so. my, my current house is right near two very large cemeteries. Oh, wow. Currently, yeah. <laughs> I've had Halloween's really fun at your place. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I love how she, she's down in the, the cemetery now. She's got the gun held to her head. And I love how he's reasoning with her. Like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Just calm down. And then she points it to him. And he's like, you will kill me? Go ahead. I, I'm not in charge here. I'm just his messenger. And I was like, who's messenger? And But I love how Samantha doesn't try to have a conversation with it. She realizes, no, there's only one way out. And and it's what Ozzy Osbourne taught us in you know eighty six or whatever. It's you know it's, there's one solution here, and so she puts the gun to her head, and then boom. And I mean it's again another one of those Savini like effects. Yeah, the, the head explodes out the whole bit, and she just drops. Yeah, there are chunks. Yeah, chunks fly out of her head. And then the movie does something that it makes me angry at it, because if that had ended there, if it had gone to black and credits had rolled. Standing O, no problem. Oh, but yeah. We wake up in the hospital. She's got her head bandaged. You know, all this is going on. And the nurse lays that line that she said in the plot summary there. Oh, you'll both be fine. You know? And I'm like, how? Your brain is on the ground. You're not, She's never going to have a normal life. There's no way you can convince me of that. What is it because she's infected with the mystical? Is that what it saves her? That, and, th- well, that could be what they're implying. I mean, yeah. Grandma was clearly 300 years old. Yes, true. So. And, and, you know, Mary Warnov is no spring chicken either. No. You know, so I'm thinking that might be what they were going for. Okay. Uh, as in what saved her was like the touch of evil or the power of whatever thing that needs her to, to bring it to fruition. I guess so. The, the thing that got me about it, though, was really is I, I felt like – you, you you made this a really brave choice to have her take that step, which is, while it's not original, it's pretty interesting. And if it had ended there, I'd have been like, that's pretty awesome. That's brave to do that. But then to go with this, this almost feels too Hollywood for me. Like, I'm like, no, I, why, why have this coda at the end? Because it's already unnerving enough. I didn't need to be unnerved more by realizing that Rosemary is going to give birth to the baby. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I. Part of me, uh, like you said, doesn't like the ending. Um, 
that it's leaving itself open for a sequel. But part of me thinks that that's pretty much the most 80s direction you could make. That's this movie's version of Michael Myers disappearing at the end of Halloween. Right, which is not left to be open for a sequel. That was just the sting that they came up with and happened to pick up from it. I think that's what he's going for, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of sting. That she went through all this, uh, she even made the choice to shoot herself, and it still didn't do her any good. Yeah, well, that, and see, that's the hopeless part of this thing is that this girl can't catch a break at all. She's got the worst roommate ever. All right, <laughs> she does have a pretty nosy friend. He was a good friend, but a nosy friend nonetheless. All right, mm-hmm. she's got a really terrible instinct about people. And now she's been infected with the Antichrist. Uh, you know, she's been assaulted. She's been shot. You know, and and now she shoots herself. So, and it still doesn't kill her. I'm like, man, you can't catch a break, girl. She's definitely got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> no doubt. Well, I think we've teased it enough here at the end. I'm going to ask you final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for Ty West, The House of the Devil. I'm going to give it a large popcorn. It, it's like you said, the last, the, the stinger can take some of the luster off of it. And I think if it had just ended with her shooting herself, I'd have gone extra large popcorn. But even with that, even with ambivalence towards that, even though I think it was a deliberate choice, because I think everything in this movie was a deliberate thought through choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still got to go large popcorn. It's a great flick. Uh, the lack of budget in no way harms the movie. Yeah. Uh, for people with a, a love of, or at least a memory of eighties horror, it's going to feel like it fits right in. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was like your wife. I thought it was a, a, a movie from the eighties too. It, it plays that string out perfectly. And, and that's just another, not, not, but it's not stuck being a pastiche of the eighties just for the sake of being a pastiche. It, it works as a movie first and foremost, and then all the 80s stuff just adds to that, I think. I, You know, when I watch this, every time I've watched it, I've had pretty well the same reaction to it. I've picked up more and more stuff, and I think that's the testament to this film ultimately is that the more you watch it, the more you're going to get out of it because there's something to be gained in repeat viewings of it. And that, to me, is the best you know, criticism and, and compliment I can pay to this is that it rewards you to rewatch it. Even when you know, the big twist is, you know, is it fun to go back through it and see if you can pick up on all the little stuff? And it is, and this movie is strong. I I don't care for the way it ends. I mean, we've talked about that now and for the same reasons, but I still think again, the fact that it is so deliberate in everything that it's doing and that it executes all that and it hits it all is something to be noticed and, and noted. And so it's not perfect by any means, but it's really, really good. And I think even if you're not into horror films, you can find something to enjoy here with this. There's a good suspense thriller kind of story. You want a good jump? This will give it to you. So I'm going to go large popcorn on it as well. And I'm really curious to see what Ty West is going to do next. This movie he's got coming out, uh, the Western thing that we already talked about. I'm really curious to see how that plays out and uh, to where it goes, because this is the kind of filmmaking in the genre that I think 
needs to be rewarded more often. As usually happens, though, when people do these kind of things, you know, it gets run to death, right? So you know, people have tried to do this forever. And I, I even think Ty West tried to repeat his steps with the innkeepers. And, I, you know, I watched that one and was mostly bored with it. I didn't really go for that one. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I think this was definitely a home run. That's more of a good double. Uh, yeah, uh, you can't hit a home run every time, I think. No, no, very true. So, But a good start nonetheless, and a really interesting film. Glad we got a chance to talk about it here. So one of your little Halloween treats, folks, here from us at Continuous Play. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and definitely let us know what you think about it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And also hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, you, you never know. You ask, and you may receive on Twitter. So um, now that's not saying we're going to do everything that gets requested but uh you know we do really appreciate your support gang and if you if you do throw something our way that seems like a good idea you will definitely take it under consideration we enjoy doing this podcast and glad to be here to discuss it all with you guys so for ron i'm jay thanks for listening to filmstrip